during which the high priest was required to wash himself, himself several times, and he was also required to change his clothes several times before he could offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And so in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 28, we find God saying this, Do not do any work on that day, the day of atonement, because it is the day of atonement when atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. And so this day was fast. They abstained from work. They acknowledged it by fasting before the Lord. Now fasting was also a sign of repentance. And so if you had sinned against God and you wanted God to be aware of how sorry you were for that sin, and if you wanted to make a 180 as we heard last week, then you fasted before the Lord. Take Ahab, for example. Ahab was one of the most wicked kings in Israel. The Bible tells us, in fact, God himself said of Ahab, Ahab that he had sold himself to do evil. What that means is that he had sold his very soul to the devil. And so anything that came from him was evil. But when the prophet Elijah came to him with a message from God saying, Ahab, because of your wickedness, God is going to send disaster not only upon you, but upon your family. This is what Ahab does in 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 27 through 29. He tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. So he humbled himself before God. He humbled himself in fasting. And because he did that, God decided not to go through with the harm that he had planned to do to him and his family. Now, fasting was also associated with mourning. And so in the book of Esther, we learn of a wicked man named Haman. Haman tricked the king into signing a law that basically said that all of the Jewish people would be exterminated. And when Queen Esther heard that this law had been signed by the king, this is how um, she and all of the Jewish people responded. Esther chapter 4 and verse 3. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. What is fasting then? It is denying your body of the pleasure of food, maybe media, entertainment, in some cases even marital intimacy, so that you might allow your spirit, your soul, to hunger, to thirst, to go after God in prayer. Fasting is letting God know that your desire for him is stronger than any other desire that you may have. I'm told that Asterius was a bishop in the 4th century. This is what he said, I quote, Fasting ensured that the stomach would not make the body boil like a kettle, to the hindering of the soul. In other words, fasting ensures that your soul 
hungers after what it should rather than allowing your body to take over with pleasure. And so the psalmist David said this about his hunger, the hunger of his soul for God. Psalm 63 in verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now if you were in a land like that, you would hunger and thirst for water, something to quench your thirst. Psalmist David says, that is how I hunger and thirst for you. But let us note that as important as fasting was and is, God often has a problem with how people have gone about doing it. People have often been guilty of fasting and praying in order to let people know how righteous they are. And God finds that offensive. In fact, God makes it clear that this kind of fasting never gets his attention. Let's turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 58. And I will read to you some words that God said to his people who were not fasting correctly. He said this, Fasting like yours will not make your voice to be heard on high. Will you call this a fast? In other words, are you calling the kind of fasting that you're doing fasting? Will you call this a fast a day and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? And to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the, home, bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then, meaning when you really fast the way that you need to fast or should fast, then shall your light break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your regard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. And you shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Now that's a long story right there. But in other words, the kind of fasting that really pleases God is the kind in which we humble ourselves and bring before God the problems in our lives, the problems in our homes, the problems in our church, the problems in our nation, and the problems in our world. And God says that when you do that, I will respond by pouring out my light, my glory, my righteousness, and my healing on you. 
And then after I will have done that, I will propel you by my spirit into spiritual works of compassion. Compassion for the poor, the hungry, the homeless, and the naked. Justice for the oppressed. This is the kind of fasting that God delights in. So we may have lost the correct perspective on fasting, but our second point is this. But fasting will become relevant again. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And so Jesus' answer here is very simple. Now, meaning not now as we are here in the 21st century here in Brown's Chapel, but now as in the time when he was speaking, now is not the time for fasting but for celebration. Why? Because wherever there is a bridegroom, there is a wedding. Do you agree? And weddings are never meant for fasting. You never attend a foodless wedding. I've never been to one, as Ed over here laughed out when I said that, because I'm sure he has never attended one either. Have you, Ed? He's so busy, he doesn't even know I'm talking to him. All right, but you never attend foodless weddings, because weddings are for celebration. They're for eating and drinking and dancing. And so in this passage, what Jesus is doing is that he's comparing himself to a bridegroom. A bridegroom who came to earth for the express reason of choosing a bride for himself. And that is what we are as the church of Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Christ. He is our bridegroom. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God uses very intimate language, marital language even, to refer to his relationship between himself and us. He is our husband. We are his bride. He's our bridegroom, and we are his bride. And so as long as Jesus was with them, there need not be any need for fasting, but for celebration. However, Jesus is looking to the time when he would be removed from his people, an obvious reference to his crucifixion, his burial, and then his ascension. He would be removed from the earth, and then fasting will become appropriate again, Jesus says. Because, you see, the bride, which is the bride of Christ, the church, we are going to be longing for the bridegroom's return. Now, that's what the Apostle Paul meant when he said that all of creation is even now groaning for the hope of being reunited with our bridegroom. Romans chapter 8, verses 17 through 30. And that's what he meant when he said that our perishable bodies long for the hope of putting on immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58. And that's what the Apostle John meant when he spoke of the longing of the bride of Christ to be finally and forever reunited with our bridegroom, Revelation 21 and verse 22. I want to ask you this morning, are you longing for your bridegroom's 
return? Or are you so attached to life that you seldom even think of your bridegroom's return? I believe that fasting will keep your desire for your bridegroom front and center in your life. I'm told that before leaving for work, a man, I'm sorry, before leaving work to head home, a man decided that he was going to surprise his wife. He was going to show him, show her, I'm sorry, just how much he loved her. And so he showered at the job, he shaved, um, he put on a change of clothing, and um, he went and bought her some nice um, flowers, which he intended to take to her. And so he comes to the front door and decides that he was going to knock and surprise her by the new look and smell and, you know, bouquet of flowers. And when the wife opened the door, she says, oh no, this has been a terrible day. First, I had to take Billy to the ER and have him stitched up. And then your mother called and said she was coming in two weeks. And then the washing machine broke and now this you have come home drunk. <laughs> that was funny. Now, that is not the kind of watching that you do for your bridegroom. Here's a question. Did Jesus ever command that we fast? The answer is no. You will never in any way in the Bible find Jesus commanding his disciples to fast. But he says that fasting will become relevant again. Fasting will become important again. And we, his bride, who are longing for the spirit of God to sanctify us completely, we who are longing for God to bring revival to our church, that is what we pray for constantly. We who are longing to see the lost people of Greenfield come to Christ by the hundreds. We who are longing to see our land healed of the evil of violence, of abortion, of racism, of pornography, of divorce, even of war. We who can't wait for our bridegroom to return and make all things new. We find ourselves groaning and crying out, sometimes even more than we desire food. Even so, Lord, Come. Fasting will become relevant again, Jesus says. Thirdly, and finally, a new way has been established. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled. The skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires the new, for he says the old is better. Now there are three pictures that Jesus uses in this passage that point to the bridegroom's presence representing something new. The bridegroom's presence among his people represents something new and it requires a new way of ordering our lives, spiritually speaking. Here's the first picture. 
It is that of a new piece of cloth. Now, you as well as I know that no seamstress. How many seamstresses do we have here? Many people saw several hands. You never take an old piece of cloth and, and sew it onto a new piece, do you? Because if you did, it would wreck both. It would ruin both. So what Jesus is saying here is that he's casting himself as the new cloth. And Jesus can never be wedded to religion, to philosophy, to tradition, to any old practice at all. He replaces them. It can never be Jesus and religion, Jesus and tradition. It can only be Jesus alone. That's what he's saying. Can't be wedded to anything else. It must be Jesus alone. And then the second picture is that of wine and wineskins. It says putting new wine into old wineskins would be a disaster. Because you see, when the wine fermented, it would cause the old wineskins to burst, and then you'd lose all of that new wine. So again, Jesus is teaching that you cannot blend the new ways that he was bringing to the old ways of Judaism. You can't do that without destroying both. What was Jesus bringing? He was bringing grace that would allow us entrance to God by faith. This was so opposite to the uh, sacrificial system, the Judaistic way of thinking that um, the Jews were accustomed to. And so Jesus is saying, I'm bringing something new. You can't marry this new thing that I'm bringing with this old tradition that you have. If you did that, it would ruin both of them. So grace through faith and repentance, this has now replaced the law, the old wineskin of the law of the sacrificial system. Later, as we read scripture, we would recognize that the new wine of the Holy Spirit poured out upon Jew and Gentile would cause the old wineskins of Judaism to burst, wasn't able to contain that. And so when Jesus says that the new wine must be poured into new wineskins, he's calling for us to embrace this new way of thinking, salvation through faith. Hungering for the Holy Spirit. Hungering after God's kingdom and his righteousness. Hungering for the bridegroom's return. This is the kind of desire and fasting that should capture God's people. So the third and final picture involves someone who is already so filled with the old wine that they will reject the new wine. Jesus says, no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says, the old is better. What Jesus is saying is that some people will never come to him at all. Because they are already satisfied with the old tradition of Judaism. Nothing will change their mind. They will be settled in it. And so he's challenging people to embrace the new wine which is himself rather than settling for the old wine of religion. Here's the bottom line of our message this morning. Jesus is the new wine which we must drink to the full. 
not partially, but to the full. Can't close without challenging you in these three ways this morning. First of all, taste and see that the Lord is good. That comes directly out of the Psalms. Those are David's words. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, you can never tell me how good something is if you've never tasted it. You can't tell me. You can tell me you think it tastes good, but you don't know that it tastes good because you've never tasted it. To taste something is to experience it yourself. And so you must experience Jesus for yourself. This is what Jesus himself says, that my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Now, he doesn't mean that in a literal sense. He obviously means it in a spiritual sense. You eat and you drink of Jesus by partaking of him through faith. Faith that leads to repentance. In other words, you believe in Jesus and you have a change of mind and a change of heart. And as Jim told us last week, you make a complete 180 by turning to Jesus with all of your heart. Now this is your invitation to do exactly that. To partake of Jesus by turning to him with all of your heart, by turning a complete 180 and putting your trust, your confidence, and your faith in Jesus. When you do that, Jesus meets you, forgives you, saves you, and gives you beautiful hope of eternal life. I may be talking to somebody here this morning that you've kind of heard about it. Maybe you've wanted to do it. You've never really done it. This is your opportunity to do exactly that. I may be talking to somebody in line this morning who knows, knows, deep down, they know about Jesus, but they don't really know Jesus. I want to challenge you this morning. Taste and see that the Lord is good. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I'm just going to pray this morning that God would give you the grace to turn to him with all of your heart and to say, this, this Sunday, March 20th, is the day I finally said yes to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your word is very clear. It is Jesus alone. It is faith in Jesus that changes and transforms hearts and lives. God, I believe there are persons here this morning who have heard this word and persons online who need to finally say yes to Jesus, who need to finally taste and see that you are good. You're merciful, you're gracious, and you're forgiving. Pray that salvation would come to some heart today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. With your, your heads still bowed and your, your eyes still closed, I want to ask if there's any person here this morning that prayed that prayer as I was praying. If you want to let me know that you did, would you kindly just put your hand up that I can see? that you have finally invited Jesus into your heart to be your Savior and Lord. May I see your hand?
Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for speaking to our hearts today. Let your will be done in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's our second um, application point this morning. I want to challenge you to hunger and thirst for the new wine. Now, the new wine in Scripture refers to the Spirit of God himself, the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us in Ephesians, do not get drunk with wine, that is, fermented wine, that is, alcohol. For that is debauchery, Paul says. But instead, be filled with the Spirit, who is the new wine, who was poured out for the believers. In other words, don't live for what satisfies your flesh. Don't make that your life's aim or your life's pursuit. But let the Holy Spirit fill all of you, every space in your heart and life. Let him renew you. Let him strengthen you. Let him counsel you as you go through difficult situations that you can't, try to figure, you can't figure out what to do. Let him counsel you. He's our counselor. Let him direct your paths. But there needs to be a hungering and a thirsting after the Spirit of God. Here's our third and final application point. Keep watching. I'm talking to believers here. Keep watching for the bridegroom's return. Now, every bride I know, including mine, longs for the return of their bridegroom. If they are away, maybe in the military, or if they are away on some trip, on some assignment, even if they are estranged from each other, as long as there is love, there is a longing for the return of their bridegroom. They literally, and you brides can tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong, you literally count down the days, maybe even the hours when they are returning. Come on, Randy, say amen. Because <laughs> you know that is true. Every, every bride that loves her bridegroom can't wait for them to return. And so they keep the house picked up. They keep whatever. Yes, there you go. There you go. I was not telling lies out of school at all. I mean, it's true. We long for the return of our bridegroom. And so we, let's put ourselves in the position of a bride because that's who we are. Jesus says in his word that the church, the believers, we are his bride, his bride and he is our bridegroom. And so we have been commanded in scripture to watch for the bridegroom's return. That means we must keep our hearts ready. That means we must keep watching and praying and serving because in an hour when we least expect it, the bridegroom will return. And only those who have their lamps trimmed and burning and who are ready for the bridegroom will go in with him to the marriage supper. I want to use this opportunity, if you will allow me, to warn you against prayerlessness. To warn you against carelessness. To warn you against complacency. 
to warn you against even spiritual laziness and against living so close to the world that compromise and drifting and backsliding become easy. Can I say that again? Let me, as your pastor, use this opportunity to warn you against prayerlessness, against carelessness, against complacency, spiritual laziness, and even against living so close to the world that it becomes so easy to compromise and to drift and to backslide from your faith. Be ready, because in an hour that you think not, the bridegroom will return. Let us pray together. God, there is a longing in our hearts for the bridegroom. Truly, Lord, there's a desire and a longing and an expectancy. We long for you to return. And we ask, God, that you'd help us to live in a state of readiness. Watching, waiting, serving, hastening your return. Lord, we ask that you teach us how to be satisfied by Jesus alone. Not to add other things, including religion and tradition, to our faith. But to have faith in Jesus alone. God, we ask your continued blessing upon us. May we be encouraged by this word to be faithful to you. Because one of these days you're coming again and we want to go in with you to the marriage supper of the Lamb. To be reunited with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.